and welcome back to the Family and Friends podcast, the weekly podcast from us here at Family Creative. Each week we introduce you to someone from our professional creative network, learn a little about other people we feature and discuss different routes into the industry and our guests' personal experiences. Our guest this week is a very special uh, guest on the show from the Hackney Wickers charity, one of the top dogs, Barry Laslett. Barry's now got over 20 years experience working with charities and in that sector. It's fascinating to, you know, hear his first-hand experience, both with the things he struggled growing up with uh, in East London and those same issues that are prevalent in the local community today. Speaking to him, you really get a, a good idea of why he does what he does. Um, and it's fantastic to see someone who cares so much in a position that he is now in um, to you know, absolutely maximise his impact on the local community. We talk about the recent workshops we've done in collaboration with the Wickers charity, which have been absolutely fantastic. I hope you enjoy this episode of Family and Friends with Barry Laslett. Coming to the Wickers and, and joining the charity has is, is made me sort of reflect on my own childhood quite a bit. And mm. so my, my I've, always, I've got personal experiences that, that are not only relevant, but then also spending 20 years working for Bernardo's, who, who are the sort of biggest uh, charity in the, uh, for children's charity in the UK. Mm-hmm. And, and it was only when I came to the Wickers that I actually sort of started to reflect on both of them experiences. So life before Bernardo's and and then my life changing when I joined Bernardo's. So my childhood was, you know, I, I could I was classed as a disadvantaged kid. I grew up on a social housing estate uh, from a single parent family. Um, I got involved in crime from quite a young age, um, and and then sort of that sort of escalated um, quite quickly. So I think the first time. I was arrested. I was about eleven, um, and and then and then moving. It just that was just normal life, you know. That was just how it was, you know. And and growing up like that, you don't think or feel anything is different. You just feel that that's your life. That's the cards you've been dealt, and and that's what you've got to live. And so I sort of reflect on that quite a lot when I think about the young people that we're working with because. I was very lucky um, in terms of how my life sort of panned out and how things nav- how I navigated things that I didn't end up with a criminal record. Um, I never went to prison, but that was pure luck. And and then there was certain things that happened on that journey that that sort of got me to where I am today. But again, it was luck, it was, mm. you know. And so when when I when when um sort of thinking now a lot about my childhood in terms of getting into crime, then getting into drugs and taking drugs, um, and then becoming a drug dealer, um, and then getting into violence. Um, it's been quite sort of therapeutic joining you know it's made me reflect on things and thinking about why I did Maybe, the way yeah, I did yeah try and like break it down a bit and yeah. understand it a little bit more yeah, now with an adult's head on and, yeah. exactly that exactly that it's like reflecting on well actually some of the challenges that I experienced and the barriers that I experienced 
that are still true now. Yeah. Um, and you know, I I've got friends who, who who are dead. You know, I've got friends who have spent you know the vast majority of their life in prison. Um, I've got friends who are you know drug addicts and 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 have gone down a path where they can't come back from or or they don't think they can and and so I feel very very fortunate that that I sort of went through what I went through and and managed to to sort of come out the other side because not many of us do get that opportunity so I think for me when I when I first joined the Wickers was was to think about a lot about my childhood experiences a lot about the barriers that I experienced and my friends experienced and and looking at what the root causes of knife crime are you know because Wickers is a knife crime charity we're focused on trying to prevent young people getting into the life that I got into and and also you know some of our staff members as well and and having that you know, having that hindsight is, is a wonderful thing. Um, and so we think about, well, what are the root causes of knife crime? And for us, it's about poverty and it's about education. And so so that's sort of where 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 I've sort of come from and now I'm looking at knife crime and the angle that the Wickers is looking at in terms of how we want to try and prevent these young people making the same mistakes we did. Um, and then my sort of 20 years at Bernardo's, which it was only probably the last couple of years where I felt confident enough to tell him about my past. I was There was a period of time when I was still working, when I'd started working at Bernardo's because I'd decided that I wanted to try and change my life. And, and there was two things that sort of jump out at me. One was that I got someone to write me, a friend of a family, to write up and say I'd, I'd worked for him for six months doing administration and got a fake reference and then went to a recruitment agency, done all these awful recruitment jobs, like these temping jobs, absolutely awful. Really? I mean, yeah. It's the office, like? Um, so, well, they, first of all, I wasn't allowed in the offices, so I was getting a lot of, like, uh, the worst one, and I nearly walked away from it, was that I got... Um, offered a temping job at um, post office at the Royal Mail mm-hmm. and if anyone's ever worked for the Royal Mail they'll know that if you come in as a temp you're like a, treated like a scab as it were really? and, and no one wants to help you no one likes you you get the worst route you know and I remember doing it for a few days pulling my hair out and because I'd helped uh, the consultancy company out at the time I sort of said to them right can you get me a like something I want to do in it, like an, an actual office job, and the temping job that they got me was um, was a three month temping job at oh actually no sorry it was two weeks initially at Bernardo's, and right. my first job was looking up they'd done this big mailing campaign to and loads of people were sending in standing orders, and my job was to look at the standing order, look at the salt code, and then write the bank address on the envelope and post the standing order to the bank to get it set up. And this campaign went absolutely ballistic and I had something like 100,000 responses. And so I sort of, my brain, I didn't know this at the time, but but my brain is quite solution focused. And, and so I was looking at trying to make this easier or trying to make it quicker and and then and then sort of they kept me on so they said i will offer you we can only offer you a six-month contract they offered me that which meant that i could apply for other jobs internally Mm -hmm. and then the other big thing that was was pure luck was that i applied for a job on the it help desk as a help desk analyst and 
I went to the interview and the interview, you know, went okay and they seemed impressed. But then the the main person on the panel sort of turned around and said, well, how would you feel about being the least qualified person on, on the help desk? And I was like, oh, I'm going to love it because no one's got any expectations of me and I've got all these people who know what they're doing who I can learn from. And, and I got past the interview. But then there was this weird thing that they had where you had to have three GCSEs past or, uh, past or equivalent mm-hmm. to join the IT department. Right. And what happened was my final two years of school, I think I had 25% attendance. Right. And none of my teachers would enter me for the exams because of my attendance. And they said that my mum would have to pay and she didn't have the money. The only teacher that entered me was my English teacher, an English teacher called Mr. Adams. And he entered me anyway. And I got a B and a C in English language and English literature. Yeah. So that was the two. The third one was that during my nutty years I was about 17 or 18 and I decided that I needed some space time out because of the way my life was going and my drug taking and the violence and everything else I went and stayed with some family who were living in in a place called uh, Five Oak Green in Kent which is in the middle of nowhere they have a fish and chip shop van come round once a week and (laughs) and they had a caravan on their land and I went and stayed in that and, and sort of went through this sort of cold turkey period during that six months. And and then while I was there, I decided that I was going to do an MVQ. And MVQ level two is the equivalent of a GCSE. No and I'd done it in IT. And I didn't even realise at the time <laughs> that it was. And and so, again, it was, you know, I'm, I, I do believe in fate. You know, yeah. there's been certain situations in my life where, where I, I could have, you know, been in serious trouble. I mean, there were three court cases that I got off with on different technicalities. I was looking at 15 years for one of them mm-hmm. and I got off on a technicality. And at the end of it, you know, these three court cases that I had within the space of about 18 months um, and got off with all three of them, um, my mum's just turned around and said, look, someone's looking out for you or something, you know. And and it's weird because I always had, even though I'd gone down all these routes and done what I'd done, and I'm, you know, and I'm not going to say that I was, you know, I, I'd made those choices. I was, I knew what I was doing and, well, I thought I did. But I, I'd made them choices and I owned them. I never ever say regret anything because I think you just need to learn from those things and, and move on. And, and but I always know deep down that that's not the life that I wanted to lead. Of course. Um, and so I had opportunities where people, you know, I was quite good at being a drug dealer and I got a lot of opportunities. People wanted me to get more involved and, and what have you. And, uh, and I never did. Uh, the way I saw it, the drug dealing for me was, was more about me being able to subsidise my lifestyle, which was going out, clubbing, you know, going here, there and everywhere and just just escaping, basically. And and I think that, that sort of thing where, you know, when you sort of get to about 15, you, you feel like you're an adult. And, and that was a point where I thought, right, I'm going to start taking charge of my own life a little bit more. And, and rather than everything else had been imposed on me, um, I decided that I wanted to take control. And mm. so that's why I did what I did. And but then I knew when it was getting too serious, and and that I needed to get out. And I made that decision. But there was still a period of a few years where I was having to transition because 
my first job, Bernardo's, was paying 12 grand a year. I could earn that in a month. Wow. You know, and so having, I had sort of three days at my Bernardo's job and I phoned in sick um, and told him I had toothache and I sat there all day thinking, like, is this what you want to do? Like, and because mm. it, it was a big commitment. And then I, you know, and, and not having the money and not being able to live the lifestyle and being used to that. And, and I sort of made the decision to do that. And my brother, um, I've got a brother who's 14 months younger than me, me and him were really, really close and been through everything together. But he had a daughter who was born. And that made me think about life in a completely different way. It sort of made me realise that there's more to life than just you. You know, when 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 it's about you, you don't care. I didn't care whether I lived or died. I didn't care about anything. Um, I didn't have any fear. I was too stupid, or you know, <laughs> to have any, and probably out my head most of the time. And and that sort of brought a realisation that actually there is more to life than just yourself. And and so that made me think a bit more about my future and what I wanted to do. And I knew back then that I, that I just wanted to do it differently. I wasn't cut out for it. I wasn't ruthless enough. I weren't going to go around and, and and rob people or, you know, or be extremely violent to people. I never used um, weapons, although, you know, some of my mates did. But it's it sort of, uh, it all comes true now. You know, the same things that, that you know, the, the, the challenges and the barriers that the young people were dealing with, it, it all comes down to that thing of, of lack of hope and opportunity because mm. you feel like you're born and dealt with that set of, cards and you can't change them you don't you don't think that these jobs and this other life that other people have is for you you don't think that you, you feel like an outsider you feel that's for other people you know and, and actually you know by by understanding your own self-worth and under and, and having your own confidence and belief in in and knowing what you're good at or what you want to do or what you're passionate about is is the first you know that's the steps to to getting yourself out of that that poverty trap and and the, and and the other area you know so poverty is is a massive reason for knife crime only young people get involved in crime 98 percent of them is because they want to make money yeah it's, it's got no other way of making it really exactly yeah. and 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 also the lack of opportunity so you know you talk about privilege but Privilege is, I think, is about wealth. I think it's wealth privilege because, you know, if you're if you're from a social housing estate and you know, no, you'll want to be a lawyer. Who do you go to to become a mentor? Who do you go to to say, oh, well, this is what I want to do, and they can give you advice and guidance. Yeah, and he's he's going to look after you, yeah. exactly, and encourage Where, you, and yeah. exactly. Whereas if you come from uh, not working class background and your middle class or up class whatever you you your dad or want someone in your family go oh yeah I know so and so you're, you're going to be pushed into it like, yeah, like yeah. being mentored well, or, exa- yeah. exactly exactly you'll be pushed down that route and also you you will have different connections and networks that make them opportunities available and and so you know that's a big part of what we try and do at the Wickers is is addressing all of the barriers for disadvantaged working class young people you know getting on in life um, and getting out of poverty and doing well and succeeding and fulfilling their potential because there's so much talent out there that is wasted and and i think that's the other area you know that we 
we're focusing on is is around education. Yeah. You know, not not only educating young people about what opportunities there are and and about it, but but also the education format. It's so restrictive, mm. um, and it's so tailored towards academics. And you know, I know for a fact that not all the kids are academic. No, exactly, and and, and this and this is the challenge. You know, I think <laughs> the education system's facing massively because you've got you've got academic schools now, and there's there's becoming less and less choice. And so if your child isn't academic, then they go to these schools, they, they obviously get frustrated. Um, and if they've already come from, you know, a really troubled background and, and they've, they've had these sort of what are called adverse childhood experiences and traumas, they've already got their brains been wired negatively anyway. Mm. And then by going to into that education format where they're told that they're stupid or told that they can't do it or whatever, all that does is just wire their brain up more negatively. And they just reject the entire sort of education system. Exactly. They've got nothing in that building that makes them feel good. Exactly. Why do you want to spend time there? Exactly. They become so disillusioned that they think the whole world's against them. And you don't. You feel like you feel like you're on your own you feel like no one's got your back you feel mm. like because also a lot of the, the the professionals that are put in place to try and support young people you can't relate to them you know the, these people are meant if you want to have influence over a young person you need to build trust you need to build a relationship and unfortunately the vast majority of people that work in the roles that are there to support these troubled young people I haven't got the first clue what these young people are going they, through. They don't have the same experience as they do. No, they just no. see them as a sort of, well, they're just a name on a sheet of paper. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. Life, I think, you know, for me, I, I would employ someone based on their life experience and then get them the qualifications they need. Yeah. Because I think that's far more helpful and impactful than actually, you know, sitting in front of someone that, eventually you're just going to stop going to we're talking about qualifications what would have happened to you if you didn't have that MVQ in uh, in IT well exactly I wouldn't have got that job in help desk you know and and then my life I'll never have been where I'll never have you know gone through the ranks at Bernardo's and then I wouldn't be sitting here today Um, and and that that is that is the 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 challenge is is that you do these psychometric tests when you get into IT and I, I flew through all of them but yet they probably would have turned mm. me away if I hadn't have had that MVQ. And if you're just another name on it, like I think they, they probably took quite a lot from your character as well, having interviewed you yeah. and seen your sort of mental outlook and stuff like this. Um, and we talk about the uh, life experience being a bit of a currency yeah, and how it's not, you know, valued by some people yeah. that just see a name on a sheet of paper and qualifications and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. How did you use your life experience when you're at Bernardo's to, as you said, coming up the ranks and stuff? Yeah, you're there for 20 years. <laughs> it's a long time to work at anywhere, really, any yeah. industry. Um, it's a career in itself, really. So, you know, you went in there with three GCSEs. You spent 20 years there. What was your journey through the company? So, um, I started off in the help desk. I basically because I had a good really good memory and still have 
uh, within six months I was bored and I wanted to move on because <laughs> because the people ring you with the same problems. Oh, right, yeah, so all yeah, you have yeah, to do yeah, is yeah. if you've got it's half a same. brain, yeah, it's, just, yeah, it's repetitive. Yeah. So then I applied for a job on third level support, which was doing the network administration, creating all the logins and, and the network security and all that. And I've got it um, and I worked on there and I've got this boss who was horrendous and and I just I was also going still going for that transition period as well so I probably wasn't the best employee in the world at that point but I, 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 I was a quick learner and and my memory you know in the end I, I memorized the whole network and you know it, my brain just works that way and always has done um, and so I used that to my advantage and then and then also being involved in in drug dealing and stuff like that you get used to politics and the difference is is when you're in an office environment people are not going to hit you they try and stab you or shoot you so you haven't really got fear anyway. no, so you haven't, and I, I've got no you know I didn't have any fear I wasn't in awe of anyone the way that I see it is that I always treat people the way that I want to be treated yeah, yeah. and I also realise that you can't always get on with everyone that you work with Sure. so I had probably the first few years were quite a lot around dealing with passive aggressiveness you know people that didn't like me and then having to learn how to deal with them in a way which didn't mean me swearing and shouting at them or or, or getting physical with them and so that, that having that restraint was was quite hard and tough at first but, yeah. I, but I got used to it I think the other big difference is to what do you talk about <laughs> you know what do you talk about so I, my first job at Bernardo's in when I got the temping job was in tw- an office with 28 women and they would all come in and talk about all oh, their children, their grandchildren, what they'd done, and this, that, and the other. And I couldn't tell them oh, I've been getting out my head all weekend in clubs selling drugs and that. So it's like, how do you, how do you then try and There's make small common. talk, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and try and find things in common? But over time, I realised you know certain subjects that you could talk about people with, and and again because I had a good memory, I'd remember then they had grandchildren or you know and you, you start doing the small talk and remember building. more about them yeah, yeah yeah exactly I've always been in, I sort of that interested in people and their experiences and I'm quite a sociable person so that wasn't alien to me but it's that it's dealing with people that are just rude you know because um, unfortunately there's people out there that just you know their, their life they want whatever they're going through or yeah. you know or they're not happy in their job or whatever and that, so you have all these different people with their own problems and issues that you have to contend with but but going back to my journey it sort of got on third levels pole had a manager I didn't like and got bored of that job I think I stayed in that one for about just over a year um, I, I think I averaged a job a year at Bernardo's in the end and a line manager <laughs> roughly about that in the end that's um, crazy so and then I, I got into um, business relationship management and I, I worked with um, under this 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 bloke called Jeff Game who was due to retire and he was smooth as anything you know he, he was such a good political operator and communicator and 
and I learned a hell of a lot from him yeah. you know just by being by his side absorbing that and I think that's that's another thing is that you know especially in my role now at, at the Wickers is you pull on all these different experiences that you've forgotten about and it's mad like day to day now you know these different people that have come in and out of my life I've learned so much from them but you didn't realise it at the time and so I worked under Jeff Game, learned a lot from him. Then I, I, I had another good boss who, who who just let me get on with it, give me so much autonomy, trusted me, um, and that that helped me to develop myself. But I I sort of wanted to do more, and and then I I got introduced to a gentleman who, and unfortunately, he's dead now, um, Peter Price, and he was a qualified business analyst. And he done this project, you know, about getting everyone to think differently and to resolve big issues within the IT department. And I, I identified one of the worst processes in, in the IT department and came up with a solution for it, which I think they were still using up until I left. And I'd implemented it 12, 13 years earlier. And so he said, you know, you've got a flair for this and made me believe in this like, I didn't know at that point where, where my career was going to go and but being in an organisation like Bernardo's being in a place that big you can see a lot of different job roles and stuff like that so you sort of see things or oh, what are they doing that seems interesting yeah, and, sure. and business analysis really sparked my interest because it's about you know understanding things about questioning things um, and, and I, that's what I do you know and that's what my brain does so and then also being solution focused looking for solutions so I got involved in that and basically trained to be a BA, done various courses. I never finished my diploma. Um, I could have finished my diploma and I never did for whatever reason. Um, I should have um, on reflection. That's a regret I've got actually. Um, Can you finish it now? Um, possibly, but it's got no relevance to my job anymore. You know, yeah, it's, true. I've moved past that. You know, that I thought being a business analyst was going to be my longer term career. Mm. Um, and then I've done that for about eight years. Um, and redesigned many, many different processes in Bernardo's, made a name for myself in Bernardo's as someone who got things done because I deliver. I, I don't like not delivering on stuff. If I sure. tell someone I'm going to do something, then I'll do it. And and so for me, you know, I was involved in all of these projects, um, quite challenging ones, you know, changing from databases, redesigning databases, you know, to redesigning processes for, for the whole organisation. And so I built quite a name for myself and and then I started getting access to different areas of the business. So this is where I learned all about the charity sector because I was working, I worked on across every single department and near enough every team in the whole organisation. So oh. so I, I understand the mechanics of, of a charity yeah. um, from from office and admin reception to the to the insurance team to marketing to fundraising to children's services and children's services for me was the one that I always wanted to get near but never could and then my big break was they was doing this massive strategic project uh, called the they was going to change their operational delivery model um, in in and it was in response to the austerity measures that were coming in and the charity needed to function differently and um, and I got because I was the only one of the only qualified BA well I had qualifications but you know one of the only business analysts in the whole organisation I got assigned to this project team. 
and yeah, it blew my mind. Um, I was working with an organisation, a consultancy uh, called Aleron, and their CEO and founder was um, this really suave, sophisticated uh, French person called Nicholas, who I still speak to to this day. Me and him become good friends. And he worked at IBM, Essentia, JP Morgan. He'd been strategic director wow. there. I mean, his he's resume and his yeah, CV sure. was amazing. And I was, you know... I, I sort of saw someone that I was really impressed by, realised quite quickly that I would never, ever be able to get to the level he was at because his skill set was completely different to mine. But what did happen is that we complemented each other. And so going from being a bit part player on this on this team, I was the outsider at first, at least probably the, the least senior person on the team. Um, within a year, I was instrumental in designing the operational delivery model which they still use to this day and 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 not only designing it but implementing it um across the uk which if if you work in a bigger or you've worked in big organizations you have so many different cultures and so getting them to do everything in uniform is extremely challenging and difficult and and charities are renowned for bucking change but and 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 also being passive aggressive um so saying they're going to do stuff and then and then just thinking oh it's one of them things it will go away it will go to pass because they have so many of these change programs but yeah. they hadn't banked on the team that we'd pulled together and we was all very driven and uh <laughs> and so i ended up with two sort of line managers on on this team, one of them was called Mark Lee, who, who, who's now CEO of the Together Trust up in in uh, Manchester. And he saw my talent, saw more in me than I could see in myself. And and um, and at one point, I'd actually written to them all because at first I felt so out of my depth and I, I didn't know what I was bringing to the table there. I actually wrote to them all and said, look, I'm out of my depth here. I don't know what I'm doing, like, I'm, I'm happy to go back to IT if you want me to and and then they sort of rang up no what are you doing no you're mad and then sort of spoke to me and, and then sort of instilled that confidence in me that you know because it was very very daunting the stuff that we was doing yeah, was, was completely alien to me and it was so fast paced um, but I learned a hell of a lot and and then ended up becoming one of the senior members of the team um, we designed co-designed it and we implemented it and it's still their model today it was the model that allowed them to be the only charity to grow year on year during austerity um i think within five years we increased the income by 100 million um yeah and and so and so that was i suppose my sort of proudest moment yeah and in in hindsight i should have left then Mm. I should have left on that high. I didn't, and I wanted to... I had and then ambitions, because I've been at Bernardo's t- so long, this sort of fairy tale thing of that I would want to be CEO one day. Oh, uh, really? And because I'd worked my way up, I, I've, I saw where I, the, the, the issues and challenges were and felt like I could really make a difference and change that organisation and help it to be better, more efficient, more effective, more focused than it was. And 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 what happens is is that you know when you get up to that level, is is politics become even more uh, of a problem, and then you get a new CEO come in and they bring in their own teams, oh, and then man. your face don't fit, 
and and that is extremely it must frustrating. Be, well, it must be quite crushing to put that that much time and love and energy into something, and then have yeah, yeah just another suit come in and <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it wasn't, and the thing was as well, it wasn't even another suit. They bought some bloke in from the civil service who'd worked in the treasury who had no clue about Bernardo's or anything that he did. And it was like doing something, must have been someone scratching someone's back. And they put him in this role above me that I thought I was in line for. And that sort of, yeah, it sort of demotivated me quite a lot. I don't blame you, mate. Yeah. Just before we quickly move on. um, You talked about uh, being out of your depth and stuff. Yeah. And your colleagues convince you to stay, stay on a program, keep working on the project. How did you overcome that feeling of out of de- being out of depth? Like, did you just throw yourself into it? Did you I, I, boost I, your hours? Like, yeah, what was it? I, so I, I threw myself into it, but also realizing what my strengths were, and the fact that as a team, if you want to build a good team, you've got to get people with passion, drive, and with different skill sets, yeah. and get everyone to play to their strengths. It is as simple as that. I don't, you know, it's not any, it's not a science. You know, it's not rocket science. You get people to play to their strengths, and so my strengths were communication, problem solving, and 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 building relationships. And people would buy into me. Like they knew that I was genuine. They knew that I was passionate about Bernardo's. So I I could broker a lot of difficult conversations and stuff so once I realized what my strengths were and started playing to them and then and then and then realizing that actually these were my strengths and that other people didn't have them they had their strengths and I had mine and actually bringing it all together is what made us the team that we were and and I think that was for me is 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 the big part of believing in yourself and knowing what you're good at and and plan to those strengths. Um, yeah, when I took myself out of my comfort zone, you know, loads of times, and and it's good to do that because you develop as a person. But yeah. having all these different characters around me who believed in me and then helped me believe in myself was how I overcome that. Let's talk about wickers then. Yeah. Um, just uh, for for the guys listening, um, just explain your role a little bit, uh, what you do at the Wickers, uh, what the charity does, you know how long you've been going, and how the last year has been. Yeah, so um, the charity, the Wickers charity, is a, a, an anti knife crime, anti gun crime charity, anti gang charity, set up three years ago now by our founder um, Henry Smith, who's um, a, a well known locally property developer. Um, who was affected by knife crime himself um, and wanted to to do something about it and was fully aware of the knife crime pandemic that's happening not only in London but all over the country. And um, and then I was approached uh, by the Wickers trustees because of a mutual contact and I'd just left Bernardo's and I'd, I'd taken some time out and I was thinking oh, I need to sort of be getting another job. And then... I got a phone call out of the blue and someone said, look, do you want to come and meet these trustees? Um, and and they're looking to, uh, they've got a charity and they've got some challenges and, and they, want, you know, they want to talk to someone who, who might be able to help them. So I went and met the trustees and, and basically saw 
the potential within within the organisation, um, and may, at that point made me realise because I hadn't thought about that for quite some time because having my own family and other distractions, then realising how much I was passionate about young yeah. people and young people getting into crime and and getting trying to steer them out of it and and spent a lot of time during the first couple of weeks where we were sort of to, to and front about what I could do to support the charity and how I could help them. Um, speaking to a lot of old friends, um, ringing people that I'd had connections with from the past, people that I'd found out that were doing stuff in that space. Um, and and now I, once, once I'd done that, I was set that I could make that charity and help the trustees. They were very ambitious and I could help them deliver that vision. And um, and so I was hell bent on doing it. And so I I came in as a strategy and business development manager, which was a bit of a nonsensical title at the time, but it, it was to try and help them look at different forms of income because it the the income that they had to date was solely down to Henry and Henry doing these you know climbed Everest nearly lost the end of his nose and things like that you know you, you can only do that for so long if you want yeah, a sustainable sure. organisation then you need to, there's certain things you need to be doing and so you know you need to be evidencing the work that you're doing you need to be doing the right work um, evidencing it and, and then you need to, to look at you know different funds and grants that are available out there so that was my initial role um, and then after three months they asked me to take over um, the whole organisation, which was three months before lockdown. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so, so it was like I just started to because at the time I hadn't really been that involved with the service delivery end, which is the front end, the work that you do with young people, and I hadn't been that close to it. So the first two months, I was trying to get my head around. Well, what are we doing? How are we doing it? What what is the impact of our work? And trying to really understand that, and and then and then um, and then all of a sudden lockdown happened. So yeah, uh, it was just thrill to the wind, basically. It did. It was a very very <clears throat> unsettling, unnerving time. You know, the charity. We didn't know whether the charity was still going to be there or not. You know, there was a lot of challenges, um, but. You know, first of all, all the schools shut. So working in the schools is a big part of the work that we do. So, you know, mentoring young people that are high risk or vulnerable from being kicked out of mainstream school because if you kicked out of mainstream school, you're 50% more likely to become a victim or a perpetrator of knife crime. And 43% of the prison populations made up of people that were kicked out of mainstream school. No way. Yep. Jesus. Um, so so we try to work with those young people and, and obviously these young people are either frustrated by the, the academic format or they're frustrated because that point that I sort of didn't touch on earlier was that with the schools, you, you've got kids that maybe could be academic, but then because of all the other kids that are not, there's a huge amount of disruption and the teacher can only focus their attention on a certain number. So I feel like there's there's a whole lo- loss of talent at mm. that level. Um, and so the school's shutting down. You know, we go in and deliver knife crime awareness programs as well. They're shutting down straight away. We're not accessing young people. Um, within all the halls that we were using and places we were using to run our after-school activities, all shut. So it was like, right, what do we do? 
And so we wanted to try and keep our profile within the community and continue to support the young people and families at a very difficult time. So uh, Sam in, 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 in my team, I sort of said to the team, look, what are we going to do? We need to do something. And Sam come back and, and said, look, why don't we do the care packages and, and provide support for those families? So, um, you know, me, Sam and, and Kieran then, you know, got involved in doing the care packages. We was we was co- collaborating with a number of different other organisations and charities. Um, so we had people delivering us food from the Felix Project, which is related to Ricardo. We was working with the, the, the Wick Award, which is a local charity that focuses on older people. But, you know, we, we was working with them as well, the local church, which we used as sort of a distribution centre. And... And we got um, another charity called Outrunners who we who do our running sessions and that had loads of volunteers that, that came in and helped us to distribute. And so we was feeding, um, I think about 157 families a week during wow. the height of the pandemic. Yeah. And we had people giving us donations and uh, some businesses, local businesses, um, got in contact and donated money and stuff like that. So we, that that's where we stayed relevant. And you know, in the May, June, July of the of the of last year during the pandemic was obviously the most challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we we continued that support. We were still trying to provide virtual mentoring, you know, to, to certain young people and and trying to do that side of things. But we we sort of kept that connection with those families and then luckily for us because we kept our profile quite high um, we got approached by Hackney Council to deliver a summer program and they said they was going to fund us for it and probably because it was quite high risk and and so you know I think they was quite happy to sort of outsource it but you know <laughs> it is what it is you know and we got the funding and, and then actually we, we delivered a six week program one of the first organisations to do it to be out there and then young people needed it you know being stuck in lockdown in a, in a flat which which you probably got you know a number of siblings and your mum and dad. I mean, it's hard enough anyway. Yeah. You know to to spend that amount. You're not. It's not right to spend that amount of time with people. No. But not having access to outdoor space and stuff. Um. It and it affects. It's affected a lot of young people's mental health. You know, mate. I, I can't imagine to to you know even begin to understand uh the, the impact it's had on on the sort of youth because yeah. even in I was doing some interviews yesterday actually in a school and stuff and uh, it's for a different charity a school of hard knocks they right. sort of do uh, like schools programs now and they said one of the hardest things was to sort of certain kids are really struggling when they're having the one on one sort of mentoring and, and the classes and the intervention and all this kind of stuff and then all of a sudden they didn't get to see him for two weeks uh, and it was like trying to sort of stay in contact with them because they know all the shit that's going on at home or all this yeah. kind of stuff and there's just nothing and yeah. you're just like sort of floating in the void and you've got no contact with these guys who you've been trying to help for the last year, two years. It must have been so tough, man. Like It, it is. I mean, so we've seen, you know, young people's confidence, self-esteem gone back, not only the loss of education as well, putting them behind sometimes having to live in very challenging and difficult situations Mm. Um, and to be quite honest during this pandemic you know grassroots charities were were the ones who were knitting all together you know 
I think a lot of local authorities were furloughing people. They didn't seem that people were not getting the support that they were previously, you know, especially, you know, families with, with disabled children. Um, and, uh, you know, they were just left to their own devices during it. And then the bigger charities just, I, I feel, have been quite disappointing because there's been no, you know, we talk about voice of the child, you know, in the charity world, the third sector, voice of the child, voice of the child. Where was the voice of the child during this pandemic? Because, you know, no one's been talking about the the fact that there was no risk assessments done on making children wear masks during school. You know, you're talking about vaccinating young kids as well. No one's speaking out against any of this. Mm. And no one's got the voice of the child during any of this. And I've got to say, I've been very disappointed by it because I feel that, you know, you can't pick and choose when you want the voice of the child because you're worried about, I don't know, PR, bad reputation or or people are going to stand against you. Mm. This is when young people need you the most. And so for me, that is when you need to be stand up and counted, not because it might not be oh, acceptable in the media, the media might be have a problem with it or other people might have a problem with it. You need to state the case and you need to defend the, the, the rights of those young people because during this pandemic, no one's been looking after them, I mm. don't feel. And, and so, you know, you've got all these young people now who've got behind in school, to become demotivated because it's the stop-start thing as well. Even my son, my, I've got a 13-year-old son, academic, love school. After the Christmas extended lockdown, totally demotivated. Never, ever seen him like that in all of his years at school. Yeah. And and he's sort of like, Dad, are they going to lock us down again? No. Are we, is that what's going to happen? And all the stupid restrictions they've got in school, like my daughter, you know, putting kids in classrooms with doors wide open, making them sit there while it's freezing cold and it's raining. And, and then, you know, and then, and then also the whole self-isolation thing, so the track and trace thing with young people and kids getting sent home and they're having their schooling disrupted. So I think my son's been told to self-isolate. So he went back in September, six weeks and you think they didn't they didn't go back to school after Christmas. So I think he spent four weeks before Christmas self-isolating. Um, and then he spent another two weeks since they've gone back since was it, since Easter. And it's not even a risk for kids really, is it? No, no, no. not at all. They shake it off. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, yeah, I don't think we should get started on, no, on no, COVID. No, but because everyone's got different views on it, depending on where they sit. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is that young people have got the brunt of this, and the, and the, and, and will continue to. Oh yeah, will definitely hundred percent. You know the, the 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 amount of young people that have become disenfranchised with school now, have lost their confidence. You know, all these charities are talking about the mental health. We need more funding for mental health. Well, maybe if you'd spoke out at the beginning, mm. you could have done something to address it yeah. rather than saying, oh, well, we know there's going to be these mental health problems. Yeah. Make sure there's loads of funding for us at the end of it so we can deal with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where, where actually, why didn't you just stand up and say, well, actually, we know that there's going to be these it's issues. All, it's all going to go to ratchet. Let's yeah. try and do something now yeah, instead exactly. of throwing money at the wall later on. Prevention, prevention, prevention. And it could have, if they'd had the bottle to stand up and be counted, I think they could have 
got rid of a lot of these problems for young people or even soften the blow, you know, or reduce the number. You know, the number's gone up because of the stop, start, stop, start and the extended lockdown during the worst time of year you could possibly have a lockdown. You know, everyone was loving the first lockdown because we had tropical weather, you know, and then and then you have, you have the second lockdown after Christmas and it's a bad time of year for people anyway. And so that just... Confined, as far as I'm concerned, it, it just compounded more and more pain and suffering on on young people. That was, I think, it was totally needless. Mm. In terms of uh, moving forward uh, from where we are now, I mean, um, us here at Family Creative, we've done a few workshops yeah. with you guys. Brilliant. It's been, it's been so much fun. Like we've had, we've had two, well, four cohorts in total doing two day, three day courses. Yeah. It's been so much fun. Like we've, you know, been showing them how to use cameras, uh, just getting them in a in a actual, you know, um, working studio environment. Yep. You know, we're this, this is an active business. You know, yep. we're, we're doing stuff every day, getting them involved. Um, it's it's been awesome. Like how how can people help in terms of yep. uh, contributing to the Wickers and, and what you guys are your your plan of action moving forward yep. over the next six months? What can people do to help? So the the big thing for us now is so we use lockdown as a way of drawing a line in the sand and refocusing and, and being more focused on impact and so the employability area is is a real focus for us so you guys were one of the first organizations to reach out to us during lockdown and say that you wanted to do something and so you've become a bit of a model for us and it was great that you came out during that time because we wanted to test some assumptions and and by organizations like family creative reaching out it allowed us to test some of them so we we thought about well actually kids that are not academic or even kids that are okay at school but are not sure about what they want to do Mm -hmm. these are the barriers to young people disadvantaged young people getting into work and getting those opportunities so what we did with yourselves is co-design those those programs which was one was the industry insight workshop which is you haven't got a clue what happens in the creative industry you don't even know what you want to do yourself but you come in and there might be something that sparks your interest um, and then the two-day course was obviously designed around young people that have maybe done the one-day course or already know that they want to do something in that space in creative industries and then getting them to come in and do something and they produce these great videos and content. And the feedback that we got from the young people was amazing and the feedback that we got from yourselves was yeah. fantastic. The feedback that you got from other businesses and other um, co- collaborators and companies that you're, you're aware of that were reaching out to use, that was, for me, was was a big rubber stamp that mm-hmm. this is what we need to do. For sure. So, so that was the first that we did. So we'd done them back in October last year. Um, I think now we've done we've done another set with you in the Easter program. Mm-hmm. We we've done another employability program in partnership with a another CIC called Shadow to Shine, where we put nine. It was again another proof of concept was to try and make these nine young people work ready and more employable. Of those nine, we've got eight into work or apprenticeships, or they've decided to go into further education. Amazing. So that, again, was another proof of concept. So we now know that we're on the right track. So it's just gone from strength to strength. We've had so many different organisations and businesses reach out to the point now where we're having to say, look, you're going to have to wait 
a while before we can do this with you because I mean, we've got four so there's a half term in, in, in June 1st to June 4th we've got four different employability workshops running um, on those days with a t-shirt printing company with a, a marketing a media marketing company with a techni- technological company I can't remember the fourth but we've got the, the four four sessions being run and, and we're getting loads of young people involved and again it's that showing them the industry showing them the roles that are there and if they show an interest then we're trying then to to get them into employability programs or we're getting them a mentor um and or trying to unlock opportunities so like yourselves you've 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 offered the, an internship um which we're we're going to help you get someone on board mm-hmm. and what we're now doing is going out and acting like that bridge you know you've got a lot of goodwill out there people want to do stuff for sure but i think there's a there's a bit of a fear factor you know are they biting off more than they can chew you know and and also you know you know a lot of people underestimate how much support these young people need sure and and so what we're doing is you know, helping the businesses and taking the, the the heavy load, lifting off of them, co-designing stuff, so we make sure that what we're doing is engaging for those young people, um, and then we then support those young people and support the businesses, so that so that these opportunities don't get lost, and and making them more available for people, more accessible, and that's the vein we're going to continue in. You know, we've got another, so we've got M four coming up at the end of the month. We've got another big program with with a um, with Tokyo Marina Global Insurance Company that we work with. We've got more and more organisations wanting to do this, and and now we're building the relationships with the schools again. So they're all coming and approaching us saying, "Oh, we need you back. You know, we want you to come and do mentoring." But then we're saying, "Oh, we've got this employability stuff." And so now we've built, you know, good partnerships with um, with Cardinal Powell, with Erswick School, like two local schools. Um, we've also just got into the Chobham Academy, which is on the Olympic site, um, and really focusing on those those older young people and trying to help them find out what they're passionate about. So, so we the big part of what we do is build the relationships with these young people do an assessment whereby we understand a little bit about their issues and needs, but more importantly, what they're passionate about, what they're good at. And then trying to match them to programs that are relevant or or trying to get them to find out what they want to do, you know, and then helping them on that journey. Then once they're clear about what they want to do, not just leaving them, actually pushing them down that route of finding them an appropriate and relevant mentor by while continuing to give them a personal mentor. So someone who can help them think about how they're, they're approaching things or if they've got a conflict problem or if they've got, you know, making sure that that things don't fall apart just for something stupid because sometimes it's about communication and it's about yeah. the relationships. So that's what we're trying to do and and addressing all of those barriers that we feel are stopping disadvantaged people fulfilling their potential. Awesome. Yeah. So so that's 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 the journey that we're going on and and people are buying into it massively you know and so i think we're creating a bit of a wave and and we're we're unlocking opportunities we're getting young people into work we're getting young people focused on what they want to do showing them that there's a different way showing them that there's a choice that you know life of crime and getting into crime is not the only option that they've got and then that by that way you can then steer a vast number of young people away from that lifestyle which means that you're preventing them from getting involved in knife crime and gun crime 
gang crime. And that way is a really preventative way of, of reducing, you know, knife crime in the whole. I mean, it's a long, it's a long journey, you yeah. know, but, but we are very much prevention based and, and, and that's the journey we're on. You specialise in systems. You, you've had a, f- a fantastic memory and all these kind of things. How frustrating is it to see kids these days lured in and tempted by the same, you know, uh, wrong decisions and stuff that you sort of were faced with when you were a kid? Like those two things have not changed. The, the same shit is happening every day yeah. to to these kids, and they're getting into the same trouble. Yeah. And yet, it's been you know how many years? You know how frustrating is it? it to it's, you? it's frustrating, but at the same time, it makes me more determined to resolve yeah. it. And and I feel now that the mission of our charity is yeah is about reducing knife crime. We're doing a three year strategy at the moment, which is going to you know move us on and and get us into a place where we want to be. But the big thing for me is is about getting alongside the education system. And and helping to them to understand the challenges and the issues, because teachers come to us, they they can see the issues. Everyone can see the issues, but the problem is, is that it's all about stats, and and it's all about tick boxing exercises. Unfortunately, uh, you know, a lot of the third sector, local authorities, education system. It's all about tick boxing. No one's looking at the the journey of the child. They're, 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 they're only concerned from their own viewpoint. So it's like, well, I need that funding for that. So, oh, I need to categorise this young person in this way because that helps me get more funding. Or this young person's going to mess up my stats in my school. So therefore, I need to get them out of my, my school. And 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 no one's thinking about the, the journey of the young person. And I think that's the problem there is that all of these systems that are designed to support, educate and empower our young people are counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 so I think there needs to be a look at it and say, well, actually, yeah, some people are academic and those academic kids can go to them academic schools and they can thrive. But what choice have you got if you're not academic? Well, you, you've got is alternative provisions and pupil referral units. And don't get me started on them because as soon as you're in them, your, your outcomes are diminishing yeah. by the day. They're just glorified babysitting services that keep young people off the street for a certain amount of hours a day. They're not teaching them much. They're none of them children, none of them young people can ever go back into mainstream school, from, really? what I, from what I understand. It's very difficult to get a young person back into mainstream school. And I'll tell you what as well, is that when you go to these places and you see the young people that are there, when I was younger, it was normally extremely violent and disruptive young people that were in these places. Not the case anymore. Highly intelligent highly intelligent people young people that just are frustrated by the school or by the format the education format or they've been bullied um there's all manner of reasons but it's changed i mean and also schools now as soon as you've got adhd or some form of adhd or ocd or any other condition it's like straight away they want to put you into uh, move you out of mainstream school put you in that box exactly yeah. and, and this box thing as well is all is all wrong the funding is linked you know organisations are too quick now to categorise and wanting to categorise young people because it helps them with their funding you know so it, for me 
it, there's, there's, there's some quick solutions, you know, um, by providing more choice for in terms of the education and providing more choice of schools that might be that are not tailored towards academic young people by putting people with the right life experiences in social work roles, in teaching roles, um, I think would make a huge difference because, you know, just quickly, you know, the, one of the stats that I looked at at Bernardo's when we was looking at inefficient processes in social care, one of the biggest problems and costs is missed appointments. You have a qualified person sitting in a room waiting for a young person to turn up that is costing taxpayer or wherever money and young people do not turn up at them appointments and people need to be asking that question why and i know the reason it's because these people that are there to supposedly support these young people haven't got the first clue what they're going through can't relate to them and therefore can't build a relationship because if they would and could build a relationship they would turn up to those appointments yeah, they would wouldn't they yeah they would because they know that it's, that it's genuine yeah, yeah exactly yeah bro thank you so much for talking to us today it's fascinating to uh to hear your insight and um it's nice to meet someone like you in the position you're in uh to actually you know help help the the local youth in, in London and stuff I think you're a perfect guy for the job oh, um, cheers <laughs> no, I appreciate it it's a bit of confidence in terms of moving forward because it's easy to sort of think that no one gives a fuck yeah when you just like if watch the news or you know and just day to day um, in terms of issues like this and it's nice to see someone with passion and uh, some fucking drive and experience and all 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 the things that you need to actually help people so oh, thanks mate. Max and thanks for inviting me Danny to speak love to come here again if I if you don't don't get bored of me and thank <laughs> you to you and Fanny Creative for for the opportunities that you've given us and for for the collaboration because you was the first and and you 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 helped us to understand that we was on the right path and right journey so I'll I'll, I'll be all ter- you know I'll be eternally grateful for that so thank you we'll be seeing you again mate thank you nice one That is all we have time for this week on the podcast, guys. But please subscribe to ensure you catch all of our future episodes. You can also follow us on Instagram at family and friends. That's F-M-L-Y and friends, all one word. For news on our new community hub. And please also check out our main page at family creative. That's on Instagram or our main website, family-creative.com. We'll catch you next time.